Yesterday, somebody asked me, he said, uh, have we been keeping you too busy here? Uh, is it too much? And you know, I had to leave Germany. We're in the middle of this refugee crisis going on. Uh, my wife was totally overloaded with work. And I said, you know, I feel so guilty. It helps me when I know I'm busy here that uh, I'm doing something. It'd be worse if I was just sitting around not doing much and she's over there carrying a heavy load. So I'm happy to be with you. You know, this is unusual for me. You know, this is the third service where I'm speaking this message. And, you know, in Germany, I'm a church planter. We start off with churches in our living room, start off with zero, starts off in the living room, it grows bigger, then we get a little building, then a bigger building, and that's what we do. And then it gets big enough, we have the elders up, they give it over, and I start again. So I don't do the three meetings after another. It's kind of strange. Especially for some of you who've been maybe here already two times and had to listen to this guy. And you're saying, yeah, he's just, you know, playing the recorder and, and like this. Well, it's not, it feels that way. That's how it is for me. But uh, it's not that way. So I'm going to, for those of you who've been, already been here two times, I'm going to put some new things in there. So, uh, so keep listening, all right? Yeah, so I'm thankful to be here. Now, um, a missions conference, a rich conference wouldn't be complete without the scripture where Jesus said, uh, it was mentioned last week in the sermon from Pastor Roger, the harvest is great, the labors are few, so pray the Lord of the harvest to send more people into his harvest. Now the harvest is great. Why is the harvest great? Who's been faithful there? God, right? The harvest is great because God opened the doors up. Before he was concentrating more on the lost sheep of Israel, but he, after Jesus died, he said, now go into all the world, to all nations. He sends the Holy Spirit, he speaks all languages. You know, we work with Muslims, and God only speaks Arabic, really, you know. But he speaks all languages, and uh, he opened the doors up. So that's why we got a great harvest, because God is faithful. But there's the other side. The labors are few. Why is that? Who's that on? Whose side is that? That's our side. Why are the laborers few? Because we have trouble being faithful. Isn't that the trouble? God's faithful, we're not sometimes. So that's the disparity right there. Um, so I'm gonna, that's why I have the title of this message today. Bumps. God calling. Me? Are you kidding? A lot of people, God is calling and they're saying, I can't, <laughs> you're kidding. Me? No. I'm going to get to that. First of all, God's calling. God has a lot of names for his people. He calls them, first of all, his children. Heirs and joint heirs. He calls them the redeemed, beloved, my bride. Lots of titles. He also calls them saints. You know, I come from a Catholic background. There's all these special people. No, no. The Bible says everybody who's been redeemed by Jesus is a saint and holy ones. Now, I'm going to read 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2. Paul writes to the Corinthians, and he says, To the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints, saints, by calling, with all who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. So he calls them saints. Now read on the book of the Corinthians. Do they sound like saints? Oh boy, they had problems, man. There was incest, there was drunkenness, there, oh, there was a lot of problems in there. But God calls them saints. And how could he do that? Because he sees them through the eyes of grace. He says, you're not there yet, but I've called you to that. And I'm going to get you there. God calls us saints. Now I have to ask you, honestly, are you living up to that? Are you saying, okay, you called me to be a saint, 
And now uh, that's by grace. Now I'm going to reach out for that. I'm not there yet. I'm not perfect, but I'm reaching out for it. I know so many people who have experienced Christ and say, he's my Lord, and they're not reaching out to be holy like our God is. We should imitate him there. I want to challenge you in that area. But it says also there, saints by calling. We're the called ones. That's the name I'm going to, the word I'm going to stress today. That's the title here. We are called ones. It says, for all those who have called upon the Lord Jesus. So if you've called on the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation, guess what? Then he's calling you. He has a plan for your life. It says later on in verse 24, but to those who are, like there it is again, the called brethren, they're not, oh, verse 24, to the called, Jews and Greeks, whoever it is. So we are called. God has a purpose for us. It says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, he says, first, you are saved by grace. And he goes on, he says, for we are his workmanship. That word means we are his masterpiece. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand so that we should walk with him. In other words, God has a plan for us. And you've called on the Lord Jesus. And the Lord says, guess what? Now I've called you. I've got a plan for your life. I've prepared good things for you. And I want you to walk in them and do them. And unfortunately, a lot of Christians are just saying, he saved me, thank God. And uh, I'll get in there some way. And just waiting. And they don't realize they have a calling. God has a plan for them. A lot of them, it appears they have the attitude that God says, you know, I've saved you. You've made a lot of troubles for me and messes and stuff. So you can come into my kingdom, kingdom but go stand in the corner there. Uh, you know, don't touch anything. You've messed up so many things. Uh, don't get in my way and keep your mouth shut. And uh, you, I'll, I'll tolerate you in eternity, you know. God isn't that way. He's called us to be his children. He's serious. When Jesus says, I'm going to prepare places for my, you know, my, in my father's house, he gives us the keys. Really. He says, it's your house. You belong here. He wants to involve us in his working. We'll see it from the very beginning. God creates the world, creates the animals and everything. Then he creates his masterwork, Adam, in his image. And he says, Adam, come here. What? I want you to name the animals. Me? Yeah, I want you to do it. Why does he do that? Because God has no fantasy and he can't figure out names? Believe me, God has a lot more fantasy than we do. He could do it better than us. But he wanted to involve Adam. Adam, I want a father-child relationship. And I want you to involve, involve you in my working. You know, that's what God does. That's his heart, the father heart. Are we listening? It says in James chapter 1, verse 8, later on in the end of the Bible, he says, you have not because you haven't asked. God has things to give us. He said, I want to give you this. I put it on the shelf. It's for you. But if you don't actively ask, it's going to stay on the shelf. You'll never experience it. In other words, God is saying, if you're not active there, if you're not willing to assume these things, you'll never get it. Isn't that sad? Often when Jesus healed people, there's this blind man, and Jesus comes up to him. What does he do? Uh, what should I do for you? I think Jesus, everybody in the crowd can see this guy's blind. You know what he wants, but Jesus wanted him to express it. What should I do to you? And he says, I want to see. Okay. And that's how God is. God has many things to give us, but he's saying, I want you to be active, and I want you to ask. I want you to be a part of it. It's his heart, the father heart of God. Share an example, maybe to make it more 
Now, how'd you say it? So you can understand and relate to it. Uh, when my son, my oldest son, was nine or ten years old, there came the point where a lot of good fathers, I don't know if I'm a good father, but I try, uh, longed for to do a project with their son, do something as a team together. And that time came. He's nine or ten years old, and somebody in the church had a car, had some problems, and I can work on cars. And I thought, hey, Joel, you're old enough. You're going to help me. We're going to do it together, okay? All right. So I, somebody let me use the garage. There was a pit in the garage. Put the car over it. And the, the plan was like this. I get in the pit, and I'm working, you know, during the dirty work. I think it was changing drive shafts. And, uh, and then, so I don't have to crawl out all the time. I call to you, and you bring me the tools. You know, like a surgeon and stuff. And um, so we're doing it. I'm working, and then all of a sudden I say, Joe. And he comes over. Yeah. I need the channel locks. And he gets his blank stare, you know. Channel locks. Okay. And he goes over the toolbox. I can just hear him, you know, rummaging around, clinka, plump, 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 you know, make all the noise. And I'm waiting, and I'm waiting. And he's rummaging. Yo, Joel, are you still there? Yeah, yeah, I'm coming. And he comes with the vice grips or some wire cutter pliers. I forgot what it was, but something wrong. And I said, Joe, oh boy. So I had to climb out of the pit, go to the toolbox with him and say, here are the channel locks. These are vice grips or wire cutters. And, and okay. I get back in the pit. I'm working. And I say, Joel, yeah, I need the Allen wrench, an eight millimeter Allen wrench. Again. Uh-oh. And he goes and he's rummaging around and I'm waiting and I'm waiting and I'm waiting and he finally comes with the wrong tool. I got to climb out again, go show him and do it. And this happened a number of times. Now, honestly, it would have been easier on my nerves and my time. I would have been faster if I would have said, Joel, go in the corner, stand in there, don't touch anything, keep out of my way. I would have been done faster and better. But you know what? It was worth it. Because when we were finished and men with your sons, it's a great thing. The car was fixed, and I said, Joel, we did that together. <laughs> and that bonds, and it's so special. And that's what God wants. He wants this bonding. He wants this exchange with us. And that's why God will actually make it difficult on himself to say, I want to invite, include you in my working. Are we willing? Now, you might say, okay, I understand. God's calling me, but... A calling, but me? I mean, seriously, I really mess things up. It, it, not me. I mean, really, I, I'm not much of a thing. I'm not gifted or anything like that. Well, you know what? An attitude like that, you feel inadequate, I'm a failure, forget it. That's an important prerequisite to be really used by God. Look in the Bible. Some of the people God used for the mightiest works, like Moses. Hey, Moses, I want you to go to Egypt and get my people out of there. And what does Moses say? Read the story. This is in uh, Exodus 3. God, I can't speak very well. Uh, send my brother Aaron. Send somebody else. I can't do it. Yeah. Isaiah, who will go for us? I'm a man of unclean lips, Lord. Uh, if you want, I'll go, but you know, I'm not very much. Peter, last week, Tim Gianosa took the story of Peter and the, the catching all the fish. You know what Peter said after he saw that? He says, Lord, depart from me. I'm a sinner. I'm useless. Depart from me. And Jesus said, now you're right, guy. Yeah, I'll make you a fisher of men. 
In other words, feeling our inadequacy is actually an important part of really being used by God. And it's good. You know what the big problem is? That people who think they can do it. I can do that. There was one guy in Acts chapter 8, his name is Simon, his name is Simon the magician, the sorcerer. And he saw the, the apostles praying that the people received the Holy Spirit. And guess what happened? He said, I can do that. I've been a musician. I can do that. You know, hey, I'll give you some money. Give me the concession. I'll give the Holy Spirit. I can do that real good. And the same Peter who said, I'm a sinful man. I can't use me. He says, your heart's not right in you. Forget it. In other words, if you think you can do it, then you're in bad shape. But saying, I'm not really cut out for this. I am just totally inadequate. That's good. God is looking for people like that. Let's look at, uh, go on in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, 19. It says, For the word of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. God is actively saying, I'm going to destroy the wisdom of the wise. And the cleverness of the clever, I'm going to set it aside. He said the preaching of the cross, the gospel, is foolishness for those who are lost. I mean, God has so composed the gospel in such a way. I mean, it's really foolish. I mean, he sends his son as savior of the world, born into a poor carpenter's family. They live in Galilee of all places. And not only that, Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And he dies like a criminal on the cross. That is a bad script. That's a bad script. You could do it much better, but God did it on purpose. Why? To filter out the proud and arrogant and to speak to the broken and humble. That's why. The gospel has purposely been made so simple that it's difficult for the proud. I will set their wisdom aside. He goes on in verse 26. Who is he calling? Now I'm going to read the people God's looking for, okay? You know, like the army, God wants you. Well, let's look at this. This is what God's saying. For consider your calling, brethren. Now listen up. Here's the people he's looking for. There were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, nor many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong and the base things of the world and the despised things of the world. God has chosen the things that are not that he might nullify the things that are. Why? That no man should boast before God. That the glory and the honor goes to the right address. It doesn't get stuck here. So does anybody feel called? <laughs> does anybody say, that sounds like me? Well, that sounds like me too. But, you know, if somebody asks me, what verse has gotten you up, you know, and given you encouragement through your whole ministry, 40 years as a missionary? That's the one. One of the main ones. God has chosen the foolish, weak, despise things of this world to do his greatest things. That's me, honestly. And if you feel like that too, well, guess what? God can do great things. Um, that's what we have to do to be used. Actually, God has to bring us to that point to be used. That's why God does it. So we, the glory goes to the right address, and people, when they see you working, they say, you know what? That must be God, but this guy is not it, you know? That must be God, and that gives the greatest glory to him. It's very evident that that's God working. Now, I've been able to share during this last week with a lot of groups here in the church, 
And it's really been great. And I really appreciate it. A lot of people come up to me and express their appreciation and encouragement. And we love you. And that's been great. But there's been a few times where I really feel uncomfortable and embarrassed. You know why? I'm just passing this on for the future reference. Because missionaries, sometimes when people come up and they say, man, these you guys are awesome. And these are heroes. And, and do like this on a pedestal. And we sit there and we say, Wait a minute, we're the foolish, weak things of the world that God's using. It's embarrassing. It's not only embarrassing, it can be dangerous. Because it says in 1 Peter 5, verse 5, the last part, God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. If we get proud, we're, it's out, man. We are nobodies. And if God is opposing us, forget it. We'll ruin our ministry. That's why I would say express your appreciation for missionaries. Show your love. Encourage them. But don't put it on too thick, okay? Spread it thin. <laughs> Spread it thin, you know? I mean, seriously, it's embarrassing. Um, this week, one of the special ways a guy showed me his appreciation uh, was this. Can you put the picture up there? What is that? Those are those stirring sticks. I shared a junior high, high school group, and a young man came to me afterwards, and he said, I just want to thank you for sharing. That was really good. I thank you for that. And I just want to give this to you. Wasn't that great? He didn't say, and you are a superhero. No, he just said, yeah, I just want to say, show you my appreciation. The simpler, the better. You know, the scripture comes to mind in Luke 17, where Jesus said, there's a servant. He's out working all day. He comes home, and he works and serves his master. And at the end of verse 10, he says, does he say, well, I deserve special treatment? He says, no, I'm just an unworthy servant. I just did the right thing. That's all. I'm unworthy. That's how I feel. Jesus is worthy. He did it all. And we're just doing the right thing, reacting to that. So thanks for your appreciation. Thanks for reminding us that we're loved and encouraging us. Give the glory to God, though. That's, that's the best thing. Well, anyway... Now, some of you might say, okay, that's great. God is calling the weak and, and uh, things of this world, the nobodies. Hey, I, can, I can fit in there. <laughs> but other people might be saying, wait a minute, but I'm not really that weak. I had a good education. I've gone to Bible college or gone to college. I've got some, you know, I'm a pretty smart guy. And I'm gifted. I can sing. I can do technology and stuff. Can God use me? Well, according to verse 19, it says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Can he use you? No. Forget it. If you are proud and you think, I'm really something, I can do it. No, he's going to set you aside. But if you humble yourself and say, everything I am, my existence, and everything I can do, even all my abilities, are just a gift of God. I have no reason to be proud, only humbly thankful to God. Yeah, then God can use you too. All right? Then he can use those people. That's what he says in verse 26. Consider your calling, brethren. There are not many, not many wise. There are some. Those who humble themselves. Actually, Moses had had a great education. He was brought up in the palace of Pharaoh. All in their learning and everything. And he thought he could do it. And guess what? He killed some guy. And he blew it. He had to take off in the desert, you know, off in the wilderness. And God had to retrain Moses 40 years as a shepherd, you know. And then after 40 years of retraining, God appears to him and says, I want you to free my people. He says, I can't speak very well anymore. 
He says, good, now I can use you. Paul said, I'm a Pharisee of the Pharisees, a great theologian. Can't use him. But when Paul got to the point where he says, I am the chief of sinners, 1 Timothy 1.15, then God says, no, I can use you, Paul. So if you humble yourself, yeah, God can use gifted people too. That's great. So um, let me share a story with you. I think God let it happen in my life at the beginning of my ministry. It was 40 years ago on purpose to teach me that, just so I never forget that. When I first started off in the ministry, before I went even to Germany, we did something they called deputation. You know, it's like, like Deputy Barney Fife or something. But you, you go out, you try to raise up prayer supporters, financial supporters, and say, I'm going to go and stuff. And so I, I've heard about so many missionaries who've gone to the mission field all on fire with this fantasy idea what it means to be a faith, you know, worker of faith. And they blew it. They fail. You know why? Because they never learned to live by faith here. So I really wanted to learn. So I, what I would do is I bought a bus ticket, the Braham bus. No, it was Continental. It was cheaper at that time. So I took the Continental bus. And uh, I would just, you know, to get to the next city, when I taught soul-winning seminars or told about missions and they gave me money, I would send it to my mission headquarters and say, put it on my books for passage or support in the future. And I would just keep enough to use the pay phones to contact some pastors and a little bit to eat for a few days, a couple days, purposely. No hotel, no place, and because uh, I wanted to learn to live by faith. That's how I became a part of this church. I came through Modesto, didn't know anybody, spent a night in a scenic hospital waiting room, and then the bunkhouse of this guy named Wendell, you know, they had this bunk, bunkhouse in McHenry. And then the, they adopted me here. At that time, it was Greenwood Grace Brethren Church, little discouraged church, 60 people. Nobody took them serious. Nobody took me serious. We hit it off real good. And they adopted me as their missionary. So uh, that's how it all started. But I, I came to San Jose, California, and I came to the Greyhound bus station, put my bags in the locker, locked them up, and my little money to go call some pastors. And I went out, contacted some pastors, and while I was on the way, I was witnessing to people, telling people about Christ. And I met this guy who was a believer already. And he said, oh, you're going to be a missionary. That's great. And we had a good fellowship. And he asked me, where are you staying uh, while you're in San Jose? He says, well, actually, I don't have a place right now. Uh, he says, you can stay in my home. Isn't that great? You can stay in my home as long as you're in San Jose. i got to go to work, 5 p.m., I'll be back, and uh, you can stay with us. I thought, praise the Lord. God, thank you. You're so faithful. You are faithful if you, I trust you. Well, I went back to the bus station 5 o'clock, 5.30, 6 o'clock, 7 o'clock. He didn't show up. And I was like, oh, no. And what happened was he told me later he says, I, I thought I acted impulsively. I better talk to my wife first. <laughs> so he talked to his wife. His wife said it was okay, but that meant I had to spend the night in the bus station. You know, he came the next day and got me. So I stayed there then. But that night I stayed in the bus station. That was in the worst section of town at that time. Uh, it was winter. A lot of homeless people spent the night here in the bus station. Uh, there was drug addicts. There was alcoholics. A lot of homeless, prostitutes people who had real mental problems just pacing around in circles for hours on you know, end. And here's this young, beginning 20-year-old guy in his leisure suit from the 70s. <laughs> Look at where am I? Kind of a scary place. 
Well, two in the morning, the door goes open, a gust of cold air comes in, and in walks this guy in a tailored suit, prancing around like a peacock, you know. <laughs> but you could tell, looking at his face, he was an alcoholic from the street. He had gotten that suit the rescue mission. And he had just wearing it, but he was so proud. I think he really believed I'm better than anybody, looking around like this. And everybody in the house, including me, could say, you're a fake. That's all been given to you. And you're prancing around like you earned it, you know. And, but anyway, he, he believed the show. So he went to a seat. And there was, had these rows of seats there in the bus station. And I, looked, I didn't look at him anymore. I'm just dozing off again. And all of a sudden, I hear, the, the chairs are being shoved out of the way. And boom, boom. I looked over. And this guy was still inebriated. I guess he, he crossed his leg looking proud. And he lost his sense of balance and fell on his head. Fell over like this. And that was his head bouncing off the concrete floor. His earring aid popped out. And, and then he looked really foolish. You know, he got it and he just kind of scuttled out of there. And I thought, oh boy, I looked silly. That was comical. And the Lord spoke to my heart. And this is why I think he wanted me to stay in San Jose in that bus station. At the beginning of my ministry, he said, Rocco... Whenever you are proud and arrogant and you prance around with everything I've given you, you didn't earn it, and you prance around proud with that, you look just as silly and as disgusting to me. Wow, that sent a message. And I'm passing it on to you. Hope you don't have to stay up in the bus station to get the message. So I'm giving it to you for free. Uh, <laughs> everything we have has been given to us, so humble yourself in the mighty hand of God. Well, let's get a look at our word. We're going to go to 2 Kings chapter 5. Is God serious about taking the foolish, weak things of this world? He sure is. And I'm going to look at a scripture there where that's shown. God does a great work here. Does a great work. And I want you to keep your eyes, eyes out. Who are the people who pay, play key roles in this great work of God here, right? 2 Kings chapter 5. I'll read it just to get a little introduction. It says, now Naaman was captain of the army of the king of Aram, or Syria. He was a great man with his master, highly respected, because by him the Lord had given victory to Aram. The man was a valiant warrior. But, but he was a leper. Now the Arameans had gone out in little bands and taken captive a little girl from the land, land of Israel, and she waited on Naaman's wife. And she said to her mistress, Oh, I wish that my master were with the prophet who is in Samaria, then he could cure him of his leprosy. And Naaman went in and told his master, saying, Thus and thus spoke the little girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Aram said, Well, go now and send a letter to the king of Israel. I will send a letter to him. And he departed, took with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten thousand, oh, excuse me, ten changes of clothes. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, saying, And now as this letter comes to you, behold, I have sent Naaman my servant to you, that you may cure him of his leprosy. I'll tell you how the story goes on. But it starts off with Naaman. Now Naaman, it says here, was a captain, a commander, a great man, highly respected. He gave victory, a victorious man, and a valiant warrior. I mean, he's a celebrity. He's got it made, right? And it says, but he was a leper. And that negated everything. That negated everything. Jesus said, what is a prophet a man? To gain the whole world. And what? Lose your soul. And this man had all this victory. He was very famous, but guess what? Leprosy was eating him away. It was deteriorating, destroying him. And that made it all empty. 
And you know what? A lot of people, all of us are like it in the situation of Naaman. Maybe, especially successful people. You got all this stuff, all these stars. You, you ever wonder why so many stars die of suicide? Because they realize that. I got it all and it's still empty. It's eaten away and I'm getting old and nobody wants to hear me anymore. You know? We're just deteriorating. And that's a hard fact to face. I often tell our guys, and we work a lot with uh, atheists in our city. We're about 90% atheists in our city in former East Germany. And I tell them, if you're going to be committed to be an atheist at the end of your life, then be prepared. You're doomed to become a cynic and a nihilist. You know what a nihilist is? A person who realizes everything's going to lead to nothing. It, it will dissolve into nothing. Nihilism. Nihilism is from a guy named Friedrich Nietzsche. God is dead, Friedrich Nietzsche. He's from our neighborhood. He spent a lot of time in our mental clinic in our city. And everything's ending in nothing, and that really blows you away. There was a guy, uh, you've probably heard of him. His name is Ernest Hemingway. Okay, you know him. Ernest Hemingway once wrote, All thinking men are atheists. And Ernest Hemingway, his thing was, I'm just going to get into all this stuff, adventure, adventure. He, you know, he'd go to Africa, shoot big game and elephants. He'd go to uh, the Spanish-American War to get involved there. He went to Cuba and Drake and all the bars, and they're all famous. I mean, this guy, adventure was his life. That's what filled his life up. But as he got older, as he got older, he realized it's for nothing. He wrote a famous book called The Old Man and the Sea. You remember that one? The guy makes the catch of his life. It's huge fish, but we, he can't get it back. He's trying to bring it back. Do you see that film? And the sharks are coming and eating it up and eating it up. At the very end, what does he have? A carcass. He leaves it on the shore. And that was Ernest Hemingway telling how his life is. I've had all my successes. I've done all these adventures, but it's being eaten up. And nothing's left over. And that's how leprosy is, you know? Eats it all up. And that's hard to face. At the end of his life, Aramis Henry, he said before, all eight thinking men are atheists. At the end of his life, he wrote this. My life is an endless journey into nothing. And again, to nothing. From nothing to more nothing. And always more nothing. And shortly thereafter, he took a shotgun and blew his brains out. What is a profit in man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? And if somebody's here and you say, uh, I'm an atheist and stuff like that. Think it through, friends, to the end. Think it through to the end. Nothing's going to be left over. You need to seek God. We need him because sin is eating up our life. You know, leprosy is a good symbol. Used often in the Bible as a symbol of sin because they work a lot alike. Leprosy doesn't actually eat you up. What leprosy does, it kills the nerve endings in your fingers and your hands and your, your body and you hurt yourself all the time. And you don't realize it. And it rots and it gets infected. And that's what eats it up. Actually, leprosy makes you, hinders your feelings. And then you hurt yourself and destroy yourself. And that's how sin works. Sin hardens us. It makes our conscience dead. And we hurt ourselves. And the things we used to despise and think I'll never do, we do it and we destroy the things which were once precious to us. People get married. I'll never be unfaithful. And they do it. Their conscience is dead. And they destroy the thing which was precious to them, their families. That's how sin works. You young people, that's how it is. 
it hardens us and we destroy ourselves. I, a few years ago, I, had a, I have a book table I set up every year. Every year, excuse me, every week in the city center. I discuss with people, a lot of atheists. And there was this couple there, a young couple, and uh, I'm talking about God. And the girl said, you know, demonstrably, I don't believe in God. I believe in myself. I said, oh, really? Then get prepared for a big disappointment. And she looked at her boyfriend and said, well, that, what's that supposed to mean? I said, you know, you're still young. But I bet four to five years ago, you said, I will never do that. And I'll never do that. I despise that. I will never do that and do that. And you're doing it now. She looked at her boyfriend. And they both shook their heads. Yeah, that's what I meant. If you're trusting in yourself and your heart, you're going to ruin it. Your, your, your heart is so dead and you'll do the things you despise. And a lot of people at the end of life look in the mirror and say, you've become that which you always hated and despised. The lady who says, my mom, and I'll use a nice word for it, my mom was a harlot. She could stick with her man. She's always unfaithful. And this and that. I, I hate her. I'll never be like her. I'll wait for the right guy and I'll be faithful and pure. And guess what? She does the same thing as her mom. A lot of them like that. The man who says, my dad was a drunk, he's, he's a selfish guy, irresponsible, gets drunk all the time and, and you know, doesn't care about anybody. I'll never be like my dad. And guess what? They become like their dad. That's what sins does to you, you know. And that's what I'm saying. Uh, if you trust in yourself, it says in Proverbs, got to look at here where it is. Proverbs 28, verse 26. He who trusts in his own heart is a fool. If you're trusting in your heart, you're a fool. Why? Jeremiah 17 verse 9 says, The heart is deceitful above anything. It's sick. Who can understand it? I know it doesn't sound nice. It doesn't agree with Hollywood. Sound of music. What should I do? Just trust your heart. <laughs> do what your heart says. The Bible says, He who trusts in his own heart is a fool. I mean, the heart is a good thing, but on its own, it can deceive us, man. We need a standard. We need an authority that's above our heart, and that's the Holy Spirit of God and His Word. Without that, our heart will get out of sync and get, you know, the calibr it needs calibration, you know. We've got to get to God's Word. So, famous man, but he was a leper. A lot of people have it all, but they're still empty. Verse 2 and 3. Now, the Arameans had gone out. And captured a little girl from the land of Israel, taking her and made her a slave for Naaman's wife. And she said to her mistress, Oh, I wish that my master were with the prophet who is in Samaria. Then he could cure him of his leprosy. Isn't this amazing? How did this girl get there? She had been kidnapped. This guy had ruined her life. And she has a burden for him. Isn't that amazing? I mean, shouldn't she, she be indifferent? Or even better, malicious and, and, and gloating. It says, God, get him, man. He messed me up. Get him. If she would have done that, the story would be at an end right now. Right? It wouldn't be in the Bible. It wouldn't be worth reporting. Did you know what? Some of the most powerful testimonies on earth are when people get over their anger and their hate and their bitterness and say, I'm going to love those who make my life miserable. Jesus says, Pray for those who despitefully use you. Do good to those who make your life miserable. If you do that, God can use you in a mighty way. And God is writing many wonderful stories even now. But if you can't get over it, you won't be used. You'll miss that story. 
This girl got over it. Oh, I wish he would be touched by God. You know, there's a, quite a few stories I can bring. We work with Muslims. A lot of them come to Christ, and they get beaten up, stabbed. Happens all the time. The police don't want to see it in Germany right now. They don't want to see they have a problem. And if we were angry and bitter, we would stop working among Muslims. But you know what? We want to keep our hearts pure. We want to say, God, we want to seek their best, that they'll be freed from this slavery. The other day I was talking to somebody, telling about our ministry, and I said, my, my wife learned Persian so we could work with the Afghans and stuff, you know, Persian-speaker, Muslims. And she translated our worship service simultaneous into Persian. And we need a, somebody to, to, you know, to replace her because she's just really overloaded. And this lady said, you know, in Turlock, we got so many Persian-speaking people there. All these Assyrian people, and they speak Persian. Why won't they do something like that? Well, you know, I've experienced a lot of people who've lived under Muslims. They've been hurt so bad, but they said, I won't have nothing to do with them anymore. They have the gifts, they have the experience, they have the language, but they says, I don't want to go to those people. I know people who lived in Iraq. They can speak Arabic. They can minister to the Syrians, but nope, I don't want to talk to those Muslims because they made my life such so miserable. So they got all the gifting, but guess what? They're not useless because they can't get over it. And I'm just going to pass this on. If you really want to be used of God for his mighty works, get over it. God got over it, didn't he? We were sinners. We were his enemies. We turned our back on him. He got over it and he came to die for us. We need to get over it too. Well, anyway, you might say, this is ad admirable. This girl has a real good heart and stuff like that. But uh, Naaman's a commander. He's a highly respected celebrity. He doesn't listen to a little girl, does he? Oh, yes, he does. Look at verse 4. And Naaman went to his master, the king, and said, Thus and thus spoke the little girl from Israel. He listened to her. Why? Because she was so, you know, such a good speaker? Rhetorical and stuff? Really? No. Why did he listen to her? Because she had a message of hope. She wasn't big. She wasn't a, it wasn't a celebrity. She had a message of hope. And you know what? Some people think, I'm not very special. I can't speak very well. And all this, can God use me? I don't think so. It's not about you. It's about the message. You got that? God, the eternal God, unfathomable, came and hit the ground in the, in the earth. Took our form upon himself. Then he took our sins upon himself. And he died on the cross and rose from the dead to demonstrate that God in his most foolish Weak moment. God's weak and foolish? Yeah, on the cross. Even then, he's more mighty than anything we can get a, you know, put together. God did that for us. And I'm just saying, it's not about us. So if somebody says, I can't share that, it's not about you. It's about the message. Don't focus on yourself. Focus on the message of hope we have. Then the king of Aram said, okay, Aram, go here and uh, go to uh, Gehin. <laughs> I'm sorry, German. Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. Get, bring a bunch of money, because he probably knows he's sitting on a gold mine. And bring this letter. And he says, Now as this letter comes to you, behold, I have sent my servant name unto you, that you may cure him of his leprosy. Now he assumed, this little girl knows about it. I'm sure the king of Israel, he's highly educated. He must know what God can do, right? Wrong. He tore his clothes. He thought it was a trick. Isn't this amazing? 
This little girl knew something about the power and authority of God that this highly educated king didn't know. Did you know it's often that way in the world? Sometimes some little kid knows more about the mercy and hope of God than does a a guy with a PhD. Experience it all the time. In fact, in our city, we have a, a, a theological seminary with Bible critical theologies being taught. We have Sunday school kids know more about the message of God than they do. See, God doesn't need talented, educated people. Just people that are real. That's a great thing. They know more about that than them. And that's just want to encourage you. Uh, he didn't know. Oh, I forgot one verse. I'm sorry. Well, I'll forget it another time. I'm getting into it. Yeah, I uh, jumped the verse up there, you guys. But um, if you look in the Bible, Acts chapter three, uh, 4, excuse me, 4, it said there is John and Peter, they're fishermen. And they said when they saw these uneducated men, these uneducated men, they said yeah, they must be with Jesus. Peter and John knew something that the chief priests and the best theologians of their time, the scribes, didn't know. It's often that way. So don't look at yourselves. I'm not really educated. I didn't have a theological background. Who cares? If you have a relationship to God, that's what counts. Well, they send him to the king. The king reads his letter, and then he tears up his clothes and says, Am I God to kill and to make a lie that this man is sending word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Consider, now he is seeking a quarrel with me. He just wants to start a war, that's all. And it's an excuse. Well, in verse 8, Elisha hears this, because that hits the headlines when the king tears his clothes, and heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes. So he sent word to the king and says, Why have you torn your clothes? Now let him come to me. And he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel and a living God in Israel. And it says in the next verse, so Naaman came with his horses and his chariots and stood at the doorway of the house of Elisha. Why does he mention the horses and chariots? He put on a big parade is what he did. See the new filming of Ben-Hur? You know, all the horsemen, in front of his house. Then they come to chariots. And at the end, here's Naaman coming in his chariot or his horse. And he stops, puts on his Mussolini pose. Okay, prophet, I'm here. I'm naming them here, now do your best shot, you know, your best miracle. Well, there was a problem. You know what the problem is? God gives grace to who? The humble? But he, what does he do with the proud? He withstands them. Hey, I can't heal you in that condition. Your heart's not right. No. Nope. So Elisha has a treatment for him, you know, a, how would you say it, a cure here, a therapy. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, maybe a little boy or something, just an unknown messenger to him. And he says, go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored to you, and you shall be clean. Isn't that a ruin at all? He puts a big show on. He's waiting there, and this messenger comes out and says, hey, the prophet says, go take a bath, you know, seven times in the Jordan. <laughs> hey, no, man, I'm worthy of more than that. And he goes on in verse 11. Naaman was furious and went away and said, behold, I thought he will surely come out to me, stand and call on the name of his God, and wave his hand and heal me of the leprosy. I put on a big show he should too. And then he gets really angry. He says, Are not the waters of Abana and Farfar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? 
Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned away in a rage. He asked two questions here. Are not the waters of Abanath Parfar of Damascus better than the Jordan? I don't know. I really don't know. I mean, pH value might have been better. Maybe it was cleaner, no chlorine. You know, I don't know. Maybe it was better. But the second question I can answer. Can I not wash in them and be cleansed of my leprosy? The answer is no. Why not? Because that was the river that God has ordained. That was the river. No other one. And this is similar to a question we get all the time. Why do you say Jesus? Can I go to Buddha and be saved? Can I go to Muhammad? Can any, you know, all religions lead the same way. Can I go there and there and there? Can I wash in the Ganges there in India? Can't I wash in the waters of Zamzam in Mecca and be pure and cleanse of my sin? You know what the answer is? No, because only one way God ordained so we can be saved. Put that up there, Acts 4, verse 12. And there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. It's not politically correct, I know. Now, I don't like it, but that's the facts. But you know what? If there was a other way, then God was being gross, grossly negligent. His son comes in the world. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane, crying, sweating blood, and saying, Father, if there's some other way, if there's some other way to save mankind, let this cup take it away from me. And guess what happens? Nothing. God doesn't say, I got another plan. No. You know what that meant? There is no other way. Then he's hanging on the cross, bleeding to death, being mocked. And God lets it happen. And if God would have said, yeah, Jesus is one way. Oh, there's some other ones I forgot to tell them. You know, Jesus dying on the cross like that is proof there is no other name given among men under heaven through which we can be saved. There is no other way. People don't like to hear it, but that's the facts. That's proof there is none. Evidence. Well, anyway, it says, he went away in a rage. You know what, I'm, I'm sure what he, I didn't say here, but I bet. He's going away in a rage, and he's planning his next military expedition. What's it going to be? I'm going to come to Samaria. I'm going to level it. And this house where this prophet lives is going to be a crater. I bet that's what he's thinking. He's going away. He's angry. And then here come some other servants. Unknown, unnamed servants come to him and says, My father, uh, calm down a little bit. Uh, had the prophet told you to do some great difficult thing, you know, crawl over cactuses, and crawl on your knees up to Mount Hermon and pay a lot of money. Would you have done it? Sure you would have. But he just said, go wash and be cleansed. It's so simple. What did I say at the beginning? The gospel is so simple that it's hard. It's ingenious. It's so simple that the proud find it difficult, impossible, hard. But the humble, it's so simple. That's ingenious. Only God can do that. And he said, it's just so simple. Master, what do you have, you have to lose? And he says, you're right. So he goes to the door, Jordan, dips himself seven times. Maybe by the fifth time he's looking, he said, I don't see anything happening. If he would have stopped right there, guess what would have happened? Nothing. All the way or nothing. And there's a lot of people who said, I've heard the gospel, and I've said some prayers, and, you know, kind of halfway I believe in Jesus. Doesn't he cut it, man? 
Why doesn't he change my life? I believe in the Lord, my God, you know, the Lord God, maybe 75%. Well, there's no promises. The Bible says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. You must believe with all your heart. Halfway doesn't cut it. He dips himself seven times, and he's cleansed. It says his flesh become like a newborn, you know, like a young child. In other words, it says in the Bible, is any man in Christ, he is a new creature. God makes it new. And that's what happens here. Well, his skin was changed, but not only his skin. Look at his heart. Look at verse 15. So he returns to the man of God with all the company and came and stood before him. And he says, Behold, now I know there is no other God in all the earth but in Israel. So please, please. This guy's success. He's a commander. Commanders don't say please and thank you. That's what small guys say. He probably, please, never came over his lips. But now he's saying, please take a gift from me. And Eli Elisha says, no, I'm not going to take anything. I freely I receive, freely I give. Well, then if not, please, verse 17, give your servant at least be given two mules loads of earth, for your servant will no longer off, offer burnt offerings to other gods, only to the Lord. Why did he want the dirt? <laughs> well, at the, after the Ten Commandments, right after, the Lord says, when you enter the, the land... I don't want you making cut statues and idols and your things, things that you make. Just take earth and make it. Exodus, it's coming. You shall have no other gods. You make an altar out of dirt. He must have heard that. From now on, I'm only going to worship God, not with man-made hand stuff, but I'm going to just make an altar of earth and worship only him. He says, there's only one trouble. My master goes in his God's, Rimon's house, and he leans on my things. And when he bows to his God, well, I got to bow. He's leaning on me. I got to bow down too. But I'm not worshiping his God. Can you pardon me for that? And he says, fine, go in peace. Great, huh? Isn't that a great story? How God worked? I'm going to ask you in a second right now. Who are the key players here, though? There is one little epilogue. I'll just throw it in real quick. When his servant, Gehazi, heard that this guy got off scot-free, didn't take anything, he thought, man... I'll get some of that. So he goes to him and says, hey, you know what? We just got some visitors. Can you give me some money and stuff like that? And he gives him a bunch of stuff. He hides it in his house. And he comes back. And Elisha says, where were you, Gehazi? Oh, just, you know, taking a walk, you know, cruising around town, doing nothing special. And he says, you know, I followed you. Didn't my heart go with you? And that man was in, the, in his chariot. And I saw him turn around. Is it now time to get rewards like that? So you got the reward? Good. And you get the leprosy too. You know why I'm saying this? I know time's over, but the reason I'm saying is this. If you're in ministry and you're taking the honor and you're advertising yourself, watch out. I've seen over the years, I've been in the ministry for 40 years, so many preachers and evangelists and television evangelists and people like that using the things of God for their own glory to lift themselves up. And guess what? It always goes bad. They get the leprosy. And that's what I'm going to tell you. If you get in a ministry, pastors, people in ministry, you've received it free, give it free, stay out of the way. All right? Give the glory to God alone. We are unworthy servants. He is worthy alone. Now, I'm going to ask you now, who are the characters of this story that made it happen? Who are the big names here? We have Naaman, the commander. We have two kings, Syria of Aram and from Israel. Who are the heroes here? An unnamed little girl, we don't even know her name now. In heaven we'll find out who it is. 
the servant, unnamed servant, messenger of Elisha, and these unnamed servants of Naaman. Without them, it wouldn't have happened. Those are the big ones. God has chosen the foolish, weak nobodies to confound the wise. So as one of those nobodies to other nobodies, let God use you. All right? God is specifically looking for you. Now, I'm going to close off with one story. I know time, but I told I can run over a little bit more because it's the last service. So I'm going to just share a, st a last story in closing, okay? This is really the last one. Just to show how it happens nowadays. There is a story about this one guy. He's one of these guys. You know, you had them in your class. They're really hard workers and they never give up, but they're slow learners. You know some of those people? They're just tenacious, you know, and everybody else gets it, and he doesn't get it until <laughs> the next day. Oh, somebody, yeah, okay, I know. There's a lot of people like that, but you know what? He was tenacious. Sometimes he had to repeat classes and grades, but he never let go. He wasn't very gifted. He was a slow learner, and uh, he was a believer, and he wanted to serve God. And after he finished school, you know, he plodded through, but he made it through. He went to Bible school. He said, I want to serve God. And he really had a heart for being a Bible translator. Slow guy, you know. He's not very quick. So he, he finished Bible school. I mean, also stumbled through, but he didn't let go. He kept on going. And uh, he finished. Then he applied to a, a couple missions who translate Bibles. And one of them, I, I forgot which one, of his Frontiers or Wycliffe. But anyway, they turned him down. A number of times. Because they always take tests, you know. How good are you? And he was slow. He's not, you know, the real Bible translator. And they turned him down two or three times. And finally, because he's so tenacious, he wouldn't let go. He says, okay, we'll let you go down. I think it was Brazil. Anyway, near the Amazons. We'll let you go down there. There's a boarding house for the kids because their parents are in the jungle. They have to go to school. You can be a house parent. Not a translator. A house parent. And he thought, well, I'm getting closer to my objective. He went down there as a house parent for these missionary kids, you know, to help him in school. Well, he's working there and working there, always saying, I want to give a tribe. Give me a tribe. Just give me a tribe. Oh, boy, you're not gifted. Well, they finally found one. There was this one tribe who was on the verge of extinction. You know why? Because they had a collective inferiority complex. They say, we're ugly, we're stupid, and they wanted to kill themselves. They were, when they had, if they had children at all, they would suffocate the children at birth because they felt we're ugly and we're useless and they were on the verge of exterminating themselves. Total self-pity, whole tribe. And uh, their missionaries couldn't do anything with these guys. And so they said, okay, we got a project for you. You can take this tribe. Well, he went there and started working, trying to learn the language. And they were just totally passive and, you know, indifferent. And, yeah, because the smart Americanos are coming, you know, and they know everything. And, but this guy was there, and he'd ask a word, and he'd write it down. Then he'd ask again, tell him again, third time. And they said, man, you don't get it. You're as stupid as we are. <laughs> You're as dumb as we are. And they hit a card with them. No other mission could have helped them. They said, hey, this guy's like us. And they listened to him. He translated the Bible. He shared the gospel. And he saved this tribe from extinction. He hit a chord with them. He didn't just save them extinction from the earth. He saved them from eternal extinction. Because many came to Christ. 
And you know what? No other smart missionary with a quick, you know, intelligence would have done it. They would never have accepted him. God needed a foolish, slow learning, nobody to reach his people. So is anyone out there like that? God needs you. God's calling, all right? Let's pray together. Close off. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your goodness, Lord. You're almighty God. Actually, you know everything, all wisdom, everything belongs to you. And Lord, it would be better for you to just to put us in the corner and say, stay there and keep out of my way. Thank you that you don't do that, that you choose us. But not only us, you choose especially. You call the foolish, weak things of the world. And Lord, we've got a whole room full of them here, and especially the ones standing behind the pulpit. Lord, thank you so much. Thank you so much for using us and calling us and humbling yourself like a nobody and looking like a fool on the cross to save us. And I pray for those here who maybe think God's calling but not me, that they'd finally listen up and find out where you want them and quit stumbling around through life. And if somebody here hasn't heard your call yet, they've never called on you, and they're like Naaman. They have everything, but it's ending up in nothing. That They finally realize where it's headed. It's a trip into nowhere, into nothing. But they won't take their life like Hemingway did, but they'll turn around and say, God, here I am. I'm going to do all the way. I'm going to give you everything, my whole heart. That they will say, I want to follow Jesus today. I pray, Lord, bless us, Lord, and use us. Glorify your name, Lord. Protect our hearts from hardness. Otherwise, if they're hard and bitter, we'll never be used by you. So God, we just pray, speak to us this morning. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want you to stand up with me. I'm going to give you guys a blessing. God doesn't just call us, but he promises to accompany us. This is a blessing where he talks about our calling. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. And may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because faithful is he who calls you. Faithful is he who calls you. He will also bring it to pass. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. God bless you.